Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Iman Abuzaid, who is the co-founder and CEO of Incredible Health, the new way hospitals hire permanent nurses more affordably in less than 30 days at scale. By leveraging proprietary technology and data, Incredible Health flips the script, creating the opportunity for hospitals to connect with nurses, dramatically speeding up the hiring process. Incredible Health has raised more than $17 million in venture capital from venture capitalists like Andreessen Horowitz, Precursor Ventures, Obvious Ventures, and FX. And in this episode, we discuss a lot of different topics, including how this company got started, the fundraising process itself, how a man looked at equity split with their co-founder, her advice for creating the first version of a product and why you need to fight the urge to ship perfection. We also go through how they use customer insights to continue to make the platform better. And we talk about the value add she gets from her investors, some of the questions that founders need to actually ask of CEOs when they're doing reference check on their investors, how getting an MBA from Wharton has shaped her experience as an entrepreneur, her book and blog recommendations, and we dive into her experience as a minority woman founder, diversity debt, and so much more in this episode. As always, the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Hawk Media, a full-service outsourced CMO based in Santa Monica, California, providing guidance, planning, and execution to grow brands of all sizes, industries, and business models. Hawk Media is recognized by Inc. as one of the fastest-growing marketing consultancies, and their collaborative process, a la carte offering, and month-to-month fee structure gave clients the flexibility they need to boost digital revenues and marketing ROI. Hawk Media, the company, has serviced over 1,500 brands of all sizes, ranging from startups like Tomorrow Melon, SIO Beauty, and Bottle Keeper, to household names like Red Bull, Verizon Wireless, and Alibaba. And also, I had the founder and CEO of Hawk Media, Eric Huberman, on the podcast in episode number 23, if you want to take a listen. And to get a free consultation, head on over to hawkmedia.com, and be sure to mention Just Go Grind. Without further ado, here is Iman Abuzaid, the co-founder and CEO of Incredible Health. Iman, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Yes, and there's so much to discuss with with this company. And have, from doing my research on, on you and Incredible Health, and uh, I know there's been pivots, there's been a lot along the way, but I think it's always interesting to have kind of an overview of where Incredible Health is at now. I'd be curious to, to hear that from you. Yeah, so you know, Incredible Health, we're building the, the fastest growing venture-backed career marketplace for healthcare workers, and we are on this mission to help healthcare professionals live better lives and help them find and do their best work. Uh, where we're at now, I mean, we're headquartered in San Francisco. We operate nationally. Uh, we just launched our one of our most recent um, products, which is a pandemic uh, hiring suite. Uh, and where, you know, on average, we're saving each hospital that's using our platform at least $2 million per year in travel nurse overtime and HR costs. And uh, we've also accelerated the hiring to just 12 days. So I can happy to unpack <laughs> that more, but um, you, you did ask where we are now. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's perfect. <laughs> I love hearing that because it, especially it, it's, it provides some good context for people, especially as people listen, you know, years later and like, wait, Incredible Health is so even bigger now. And yeah, I'm sure that's going to happen. But I want to know now, like, where how did this get started in the first place? Because you've obviously gotten a ton of traction working with tremendous hospitals and really done a lot since. I'm 
how did this idea first get started in your mind? So I'm a medical doctor by background. I don't practice at all anymore, but a lot of my family members and friends are doctors and surgeons, and they were often complaining about understaffing and not having enough nurses on their units or not wanting to leave their patients with travel nurses. And at the same time, um, my co-founder and software engineer and uh, CTO, uh, Rowan Portlock, is a software engineer from MIT, and he, he comes from a family of, of nurses, and his sisters are nurses. And they were saying, hey, even though I'm experienced and I'm qualified, it still takes me three months to get my next job. I apply to 10, 15 places, and I usually don't even hear back. And we were like, okay, there just has to be there has to be a better way. Right. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, it, and it doesn't make any sense because, you know, the healthcare is the biggest labor sector we have in this country by number of workers and uh, our demand for healthcare keeps going up and we simply don't have enough workers in the system. So this industry suffers from the biggest shortages, worker shortages, and the nursing shortage in particular is like, is a labor crisis. You know, yeah. by 2024, we're going to be 1 million nurses short in this country. And so once we dug into it, we were like, okay, why is everything happening so slow? It turns out that, you know, the way hospitals hire really hasn't changed since the early 90s. Um, you know, post a job, hope something happens. And really, they're not using the latest in the processes, technology tools that, 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 that is needed in a highly competitive talent market like this where there's a lot of urgency around hiring. With this idea, when you have you have that insight, you figure this out, how the system is, is just so flawed, it's so archaic. How do you go about deciding what the initial version of this is even going to be then? Yeah, I mean, a lot of that has to go do with like figuring out what the product insight is, right? So I think that the most important thing that we do as entrepreneurs is, is, is try to come up with, is after identifying potential problem and market, is try to try to create a solution that's at least ten times better than what's already out there, and you know you define that as you know faster, cheaper, um, you know define better however you like, but yeah. it needs to be at least ten x better. I mean, the, the probably one of the biggest mistakes I see founders do is is they choose a solution that's only incremental, like oh it has slightly better design or like slightly <laughs> better UX, and like unfortunately that's not going to cut it. It literally needs to be a dramatic shift and change. From what's from what's already out there, yeah. Especially when you're looking at changing user behavior, <laughs> I mean, yeah. can't, the incremental doesn't do enough to move the needle on that side of things. And and with that too, so you mentioned your co-founder Rome. How did you meet him? How did you decide to go in business together? Because that's such a huge part of any any company is like these co-founders. I'm just curious on how that how that happened. Yeah. So uh, Rome and I worked together as employees actually at at a different at an early stage healthcare technology company. Um, where I led product and he was a lead engineer and worked together for a couple of years in, in that capacity. So like had a very strong working relationship and had already built up quite a lot of, um, you know, trust and uh, um, trust and respect for each other, honestly. <laughs> so um, when it was time to start um, our own company, you know, Rome is the best software engineer I know, period. And then the other thing is he is also very high integrity. And that combination is just makes the ideal co-founder. Um, and so he, he, you know, we decided to go on this journey, journey together. What was that discussion like though, when you're deciding to do this? And I, obviously you had that trust from there, but is it like, it, was it you got in the way, him got in the way of like, yeah, let's do this thing. And this is I mean, like people say, it's like a marriage of sorts. Like how are those conversations when you're deciding to go in business together? I mean, in, in, in the beginning, it's scary, honestly, because it's like, for, for people like us, and what I mean by that is like 
privilege. <laughs> when he went to MIT, I went to Wharton, you know, we've always yeah. been employed. We've always been like, had these like high flying jobs. Um, it was perceived as a, as a risk. Right. Yeah. And, and we fig- at the end of the day, what we figured is like, Hey, look, we, if we're going to commit the next 10 years of our lives to something, it might as well be, let's, let's try to make a big impact through entrepreneurship. And, um, we can easily, if, if this whole thing just blows up in our faces, we could go back to just be, be, being regular employees, <laughs> you know, the Bay Area tech industry, like it's not, you know, those jobs will be there. Yeah. Um, so, so we just figured, hey, let's just go for it. And one of the things I just want to discuss about on the kind of early, early stage here, how did you think through the idea of founder agreement, equity split, uh, those types of things? Because that's another thing that kind of people could, so, I mean, I've had classes around this, uh, USC and I think my MBA and read about a lot about it as well. And people have different opinions. I'm just curious for you, Iman, how did you approach that? Yeah. So like equity is, we need to start looking at equity as compensation, even for founders, right? So if both, if both co-founders are working full-time on the, on the, on the project and they started around the same, and they started around the same time. And so that, that means they're taking on the same financial risk as each other. Yeah. Then, then equity should be relatively evenly split. Um, maybe you have to give one person slightly more, like one or 2% more just purely for decision-making purposes. Yeah. But a- apart from that, um, you know, a technical co-founder is a technical co-founder. And at the end of the day, if you're building a <laughs> software company, software is at its core. I mean, you, yeah. better, you, you better make sure that, that, that your technical co-founder is well compensated. <laughs> Absolutely. And that, that makes total sense from that standpoint of, yeah, if you're doing it, you're both full-time, you're both doing it, you need this technical co-founder as well. I mean, it has to be pretty close, uh, I imagine, from that. And and take me through that fundraising. I know I'd heard on another show that you you had done uh, family and friends kind of initial capital raise. Like, How did that go just to get started with? Yeah, so um, the in the very initial, like we had raised uh, like a couple hundred thousand dollars from friends and family. It came from my, you know, my siblings. It came from my classmates at Wharton. Uh, you know, these these were just you know professionals that were doing well. They were not professional investors, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, once we got we got accepted to this one accelerator called NFX. It's there is no accelerator anymore. Right now it's just a seed, a seed and series A fund and they're just a fantastic team. And they're, they're, that's the team we started that fund is what we who we started working with. And um, after that accelerator program raised our seed round, we raised 2.4 million dollars and then 18 months later raised our series A uh, 15 million dollars that was led by Jeff Jordan and Andreessen Horowitz. Um, our seed round was led by Obvious Ventures. And I, you know, I say that all that in like, you know, a 20 second, like soundbite, but <laughs> we're, we're going to dig in this more, Amon, just was, so you know. <laughs> yeah, it was like, you know, insane amount of work, a ton of rejection, um, you know, a, a, like quite the journey. So, well, um, I love, I love talking about that though, because that, that is like, people want to know, okay, how do I raise funds for my company? And like these, these stories, everyone has their own story, but it is a lot of work. To that point though, so the family and friends, like how, like how long did that take the initial capital, a couple hundred thousand, you're convincing people you know in your network to invest in you early, early, early on. How did that go for you? How long did that take? Um, so, I mean, the the, the fam- friends and family was very quick because at the end of the day, like they're just investing in you, right? Yeah. Um, now, in terms of the seed round, you know, that, that, that was $2.4 million I was raised. That probably took two to three months, which is actually relatively fast. Yeah. Um, and the Series A took like four to five weeks. Now, look, this, th- these are like my top like tactics and keys for for 
um, you know, having not just as a, a fast fundraise, but a successful one, like one and which is defined as you're working with the investors of your choice and you have on terms that you like. Um, so the, the number one, number one is, is just having a fantastic, a really strong story narrative vision. Um, at the end of the day, probably the top, top piece of advice that I give is, is like, Hey, like you need to be more ambitious, right? Like stop pitching the company of 2020. You need to start, you need to pitch the company of 2030. What is your company in 2030? That is what they are investing in. Yeah. Um, what is your vision? Like, how are you going to transform an entire industry? How are you going to be the category defining market leading company in this industry? Um, and that is, if, if you're going down the venture capital route, that's what's needed. Um, sorry, before you even, even think about that actually is like, just make sure you choose the right finance and strategy that makes sense for you personally and makes sense for your company. Absolutely. Um, you know, venture capital is not for, for everyone. You know, there are d- pros and cons to it. There's also, you know, maybe bootstrapping may be more appropriate. Maybe, um, uh, you know, debt may be more appropriate, you know. V- Crowdfunding, yeah, there's, a, there's exactly. a few. There's so yeah. many other tactics. And, and I found that, the, you know, the decision for what financing strategy to pursue is, yeah, partially d- to do with the product and the market, but actually mostly has to do with personal founder preference uh, and what you, and what you <laughs> genuinely want to sign up for personally. Um, so, uh, I, you know, once you pick the financing strategy, if you are picking the venture route, the top tip is to make sure you have a very strong story and narrative that is very ambitious. And then, the, the, you know, this, the, the next thing is just have to have a really robust process. So have a very clear target list of who you're going after and why. Um, you know, use tools like signal.nfx.com that give you a database of which investors to select from. Um, when determining that target list, make sure you, it, you know, you review that list with other CEOs because they'll tell you who's good and who's not and who to avoid and who's like, who has a bad reputation and who has a good <laughs> one and so on. And, and, and to be honest, it's only the other CEOs that you can truly trust in that, yeah. right? And then, um, and then in the process, like start with, start with a tier three meetings and then go to the tier two and then end with the tier one. It's, it's a lot like, you know, a job interview. Like when you're interviewing for jobs, you, you, you leave the company that you really want for the very end, you know, because you're practicing basically on some of these earlier meetings. Actually just had that conversation yesterday with someone who's in tech (laughs) about the the exact thing and the job thing. I'm going from tier three to tier one. And like, he's in that process now. He's like, yeah, I'm a few weeks out, but I have this whole system I'm working and he's worked before. It's like, yeah, that's how you have to approach your fundraising as well. To, to have the most success and you've been able to, I mean, get some very top tier, obviously venture capitalists on your cap table, which is, is awesome. And, and one thing I want to go back to a little bit, just with, with this process, I mean, how has this evolved over time for you? Cause you've done it multiple times now. I mean, what's changed for you in, the, in this time of raising capital? Yeah, no, just my process did get better and my skills got better. At the end of the day, fundraising is sales and, um, I just the way the way I communicated the vision, the strategy, the plan for what we're going to do just got a lot more cleaned up over time. Um, and then certainly I made a lot of these process mistakes when I was raising the seed round, which I did not make in the series A. Right. So, yeah, um, you know, the seed round, I was just taking any meeting I could get as opposed to like being really targeted about it. And the series in the seed round, I was you know, mix, you know, starting with tier one, as opposed to tier two. like, I literally made like every mistake possible, which is probably why it took a little bit longer and took more meetings. But, um, uh, so it's, 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 you know, fundraising is, is its own skill and people should acknowledge and understand that. And, and it's a skill that you can continue growing over time. 
Yeah. And with that, to that point, then raising funds obviously is so you can build this company. So let's go through, I mean, how did you get your first hospitals, your first nurses on board with this platform initially? The biggest thing is to have like a really strong value proposition for both sides of the marketplace. So, um, and you know, I can go into that in a second, but tactically speaking, I think I, we got our first hospitals through cold calling and Ooh, the first love nurse, it. and the first nurses through, I don't know, one of these online channels, can't remember who was Google or Facebook. Um, so, uh, you know, the, in terms of the value prop or, or like that we were, or the messaging, yeah. right, everything starts with language and, 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 the, and clearly communicating um, the importance of, and, and, and the value that you're and the differentiation that you're driving. So, um, for hospitals, the value proposition of incredible health is you can hire permanent nurses in less than 30 days, right? Um, Pretty compelling. Very compelling. <laughs> and then, you know, there's three key ways how we do that. And they, they always ask how. And then number one is the employers apply to nurses instead of the other way, way around. Number two is we've automatically um, and algorithmically screen the nurses um, before, you know, before presenting them to employers in the platform, because we've integrated with many external databases, so you're only getting high quality. And then the third is we've built these custom matching algorithms. So it's a highly customized and personalized experience for both sides of the platform. So if you're a recruiter at uh, Cedar sinai Medical Center and you log in, like it's not helpful to see 200 nurses. You want to see 14 that are the exact right fit for you at the time. Uh, same thing for the nurses. You know, if you're a highly sought after ICU or OR nurse, you don't want to hear from 50 employers. You want to hear from three that are the exact right fit for you. Um, and that's what the custom matching algorithms enable. So the end result of all of that is uh, a more rapid speed to hire of less than 30 days. Right now, we, we're at 10 days instead of the national average of 90 days. Um, and that, is, that yields like some dramatic cost savings for the hospital. Um, we've calculated it at least $2 million per hospital um, saved every year because they don't have to spend on contract workers like travel nurses. They don't have to spend on overtime, which are usually two times more expensive than the permanent hires. Um, and so, and hospitals run on thin margins and costs matter, right? So yeah. uh, th th by saying, you know, basically this is the new way to hire, hire in less than 30 days guaranteed permanent nurses, you know, that that's what signs up the hospitals. Yeah. I mean, it's such a compelling value prop, as you mentioned. And and early on when you're we're building this, I like, I like to have the context for people as well, because how this has evolved, because we see companies today and we're like, well, how did it get to that point though? Because there's so much that has to happen, especially in almost, it's been three and a half, four years here. And early on too, with that, so you're cold calling hospitals to get them on board. You have this value proposition. You, you, I don't know if it's the same back then or not in terms of how the timing was, but I'm sure it's evolved as you've gotten better and better with the platform. But to that point then, what did this kind of look like on you actually matching them up initially? Was it that you built an MVP kind of platform for this? I'm curious as I get those early days and what this looked like. Yeah, I mean, the early days was like, the, the first product was just very MVP, like very, <laughs> it, did the, it did the absolute minimum of what I just described, right? Yeah. <laughs> And then over time, I mean, this is a multi-year journey. Just keep, it just kept getting better. Like you just keep improving it. Um, I, you know, like we were embarrassed by the first MVP. Honestly, it wait, it looked janky. It was like, you know, there was still some manual stuff we were doing behind the scenes. Like, I mean, I think that's just how it is in the beginning. And and, and the critical thing is you just got to fight the urge to make to ship perfection and to present perfection. Yeah, because I know you mentioned before on a different one, like speed is everything, especially startups. That's your advantage. 
is having yeah. that speed. And that's how you, yeah, get to that point. And, and with that too, so I, obviously you start with your co-founder. How has the team grown with this along the way? I mean, how have you approached that in terms of uh, critical hires? I know there's, uh, you mentioned before, of the matter of someone getting someone on sales, some in engineering, but how have you kind of approached that, especially early on and then kind of evolving to today? Yeah, so it started it off with just me and Rome, like two people. We're now, we're now a team of 30 and, 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 and growing. We're hiring right now as well. So um I think the the one thing to keep in mind that I kept in mind is like the first ten hires like make or break you. Yeah. Um, they really set the trajectory of the entire company, um, and so making sure that those first ten are ridiculously high performing, um, have an insane amount of self motivation, uh, is, is is critical and 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 as a result those first few hires did you know what came through networking right either either they were people we'd already worked with in the, in the past or they were highly recommended by people that we trust um and uh that's you know the first couple of engineers that we hired the first the first sales rep we hired was all through networking and or or people we worked with before um and uh then the other thing critical thing when it comes to hiring is like setting your culture and your values. Right. And I didn't appreciate this until after the fact. Right. So when I raised our seed round, I remember James Joaquin at Obvious Ventures asked us to write down our values. And I was like, what? I'm like, what is this? Like, <laughs> and he wouldn't, and he's like, you have to write it down before I even wire the money. And I, I was like, this is ridiculous. Right? Whoa. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, we did it. And in hindsight, I'm really glad we did because the values end up becoming the operating system of the company. They're how we work together. Um, and you know, some of the values, like we mentioned earlier, like you mentioned speed earlier, that's one of our values, like operate as quickly as humanly possible. Um, because that's the only competitive advantage you have as a startup usually. Um, another one is a customer obsession. Um, another one is disagree and commit. Um, and so these are you know, some of the key ways that we work together and it's important, it's, it's part of how we evaluate hires for the team. It's part of onboarding. It's part of performance reviews. It's 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 critical that we basically indoctrinate everyone in these values to make sure that this because this is this is how we work together. And one of those things you mentioned with the, this focus on the customer, how have you gone about using the customer insights, whether it be feedback from customers, both on the the, the hospital side as well as the nurses? How have you gone about using that to to evolve the platform? What are some maybe some of those takeaways or things you've done that? You've shifted the platform since because of you know any insights from from either side. Customer insights is critical, and we have two like customer facing team, three customer facing teams at all times. Like so, you know we have our account managers that 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 manage the hospital relationships. We have our talent advocates that basically are like customer support for the nurses, and then we have our product managers that are doing user research. And then there's myself, and I think a CEO does need to um, have interactions with customers like for the you know entire history of the company and yeah. and customer insights are, are are critical not not just to evolving the product which is the, probably the obvious area where they help but um also for evol evolving the operations and the messaging uh slash marketing of the company too and um you know i'll, I'll give one example of that um you, you know early, early on when we when we just you know gave them these algorithms you know this platform that was <laughs> algorithm uh, enabled um we were like, man, these hires are still not happening as fast as we'd like, right? And once we spent more time with the customers, we did, we discovered that we need to build more workflow software for them. We need to uh, things that that we ended up launching were things like um, 
automating interview scheduling because scheduling alone can turn into a bottleneck, right? Or yeah. enabling remote interviewing during the, during the time of a pandemic or enabling um, in-app chat. So recruiters and nurses can interact with each other rapidly, directly. Um, and and, and I, I don't think I expected when we first started that we were going to have to build out all of this workflow software <laughs> that, 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 helps, that helps both sides of our platform. But hey, like if, it, if, if that ultimately leads to customer delight, and which is like actual hires happening and rapidly happening, then, then we just got to build it. Yeah. And that's the thing, like with getting those insights on, on these customers and that's, that's how you get an advantage as well. It's like, you've been in the business, you've been talking to customers, you're getting those insights and that's what makes it better because it's interesting when people talk about competition, there's a lot of ways to discuss it. But a lot of times if you focus on the customer, like it's a classic, like your Amazon example, then you're going to figure it out because that's ultimately what matters is the customers themselves, not necessarily what other people are doing. With Incredible Health as well, I know you have a number of different different tools and things on, on the site, just looking through like a salary estimator, you have CEUs that are free for nurses. How have those types of things as well come about like, and how do you prioritize which ones to kind of build out? Yeah, look, our, the vision of the company is to help healthcare professionals live better lives and the mission is to help them find and do their best work. So, you know, more recently, Incredible Health has, has become the place not, not only where a nurse finds a job, but also where he or she manages their career. And it's important to us to have a, a long-term lifetime relationship with nurses. Um, and, and, and one of the ways we do that is providing free services and tools. So an example of that that you mentioned is offering free continuing education to every nurse in the country. Continuing education, uh, these courses are, are, are required as a compliance thing. They're required to activate and renew licenses. And um, yet they, nurses usually pay out of pocket for it. Uh, on average, nurses spend $240 million every single year on continuing education. Jeez. And we, fig- we figured, like, let's just provide it for free. It's just an all. It's just online courses, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, right. It shouldn't be that complicated. Exactly, and 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 so we provide it for free now to every single nurse in the country, whether you, they use Incredible Health's hiring product or not, right? Like, there's no obligation, um, and that attracts tens of thousands of nurses to the platform every single month. Another example of that is offering free salary estimators. Eighty percent of nurses don't know what they should be getting paid, and in, in, salary data historically has always been siloed with employers. Employees never have access to salary data in, in, in every industry, by the way, not just not just healthcare. <laughs> right. And we were like, okay, well, we have all this data that's coming through our platform. We know how much people are getting paid, how much nurses are getting paid. Why not just give that away for free and um, empower nurses to better understand? how much they're supposed to be getting paid in different geographies, based on different specialties, based on different levels. Um, and so they can make more informed career decisions. Um, yeah. So th- again, that attracts many, many nurses to the platform and, 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 and the nurses that are already on the platform um, find these services to be val- very valuable. Of course, there's more coming, so you'll have to have me back on the podcast. Yes. <laughs> Let's book it. <laughs> One of the things I wonder too with that, I know you don't have to go into specifics, but just in terms of your your vision on that, being obviously so customer focused on that side of things and uh, with, with these nurses and helping them as best you possibly can, are you, I mean, how far out are you planning on these types of things with understanding that there's so many different tools and theory that you could create? Like, I'm just thinking, Chris, as to how you're kind of looking at that in the future with different like free tools versus paid things like that you can offer them. Yeah, it's for us, it's like a 10 year commitment, you know, a many, many year commitment of, of customer obsession. Right. So yeah. um, that means we're going to continue providing free services and tools and com- continue adding to them um, over 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 many years. This is a long term product strategy, not just short term. 
with the hospital side of things, with getting, I mean, some of the top hospitals out there on the platform, like how has that evolved? How has that process evolved? I know it's on the sales side a bit, but how has that evolved for Incredible Health as you've gone from, you know, this first initial thing where you're you're just cold calling hospitals to then, you know, you've grown, you can leverage more of what you've done. I'm like, how has that process gone for you getting hospitals on the hospital side? Yeah. Of grown? So, um, yeah, the hospital side of our, of our marketplace uh, does resemble enterprise marketing and sales, right? Yeah. And, um, it's important to just acknowledge that. Uh, so, so for those of us founders, you know, I come from a product background and Rome comes from an engineering background. Like sales is, is just like a skill set that you just have to grow and embrace <laughs> <laughs> if, you are, if you are the CEO of a company. Um, so the, uh, the, I guess those functions have just had to rapidly evolve, right? So in the early days, it was me who was doing the selling and then it was our early sales reps. And, and, and now it's just, you know, evolved into like, you know, we've got demand gen and we've got qualified leads and, you know, what is the sales process? And like, it's all very tactical and robust. To be perfectly honest with you, enterprise sales is a pretty well-defined function with a yeah. lot of online resources, a lot of experts in the field. Um, um, just because, you know, it's, it's almost, sales is almost like the oldest function. It's older than technology itself. It's older than product, right? So yeah. Um, We've just had to really professionalize it over time. And and to that point a little bit, I'm curious as to with with having these kind of top tier investors, I mean, how helpful or like what's been their biggest value add, obviously besides besides capital. I'm just curious about that because I know there's a lot of variety of things that investors can offer uh, and some are better than others, obviously. But for you and your experience, what has been kind of their biggest value add for you? Look, for us, they're, they're hugely helpful. I mean, look, first and foremost, like I do just do want to acknowledge like the the founders and the, and the team are the one that drive the value, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Doing, you know, 97% of the value is coming from that, right? But, but that 3% of value that comes from investors can make a huge difference as well, right? Now, I've, we've always um, been in the fortunate position of, being, of having rounds that are oversubscribed and being able to be extremely selective with who, with who we work with, right? So, you know, for the Series A as an example, we had term sheets from all top, the, the, you know, the top three best of the best venture capital firms in the world, right? And we were able to be very selective in picking Jeff Jordan and Andreessen Horowitz. And, and some of the things that, um, you know, James Joaquin at Obvious Ventures has done for us, he's a board member as well, as well as Jeff Jordan and Andreessen Horowitz is, is number, first and foremost, they've helped me with hiring, right? So when it comes to finding top talent, especially executive talent, as well as closing talent, like the, these highly sought after software engineers or these highly sought after um, uh, tech executive leaders, right? Um, they have helped me close as well. Um, the, the second big area they help with is, is strategy, right? So um, given that Jeff Jordan, Jordan is a master, you know, he's a, the master of marketplaces, you know, <laughs> he, he <laughs> the CEO of OpenTable, a president at eBay, an early investor and board member at Airbnb and Pinterest and, and Instacart and so on, right? Like the, the guy knows marketplaces, right? So when I'm trying to validate things like like our product strategy, like our marketing or sales strategy, bouncing it off of him is extremely helpful. He will catch mistakes like before they even happen. Um, and then, uh, and then you know, James Joaquin in the area of of product and in marketing strategy has been incredibly helpful. And 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 because he's been a CEO, I believe five or six times, um, and as you know, 
many of those companies have either been acquired or IPO'd as well. So he is an operator at heart, right? And so let's say I'm having challenges with the team or having challenges with, you know, dealing with employees, whatever it is, like he is a, an experienced operator that I can bounce, that I can like do a mental check with, right? Um, and then the third area that I think is just like quite underrated and, and or underappreciated is the, is the, the mental, uh, I don't know how to describe it, that like <laughs> the mental confidence that these investors can drive, right? So yeah. This is at the end of the day, founders are on a very tough, we're on a very tough journey. I'm on a very tough journey. I'm, you know, trying to build something from nothing is, is a hard thing to do. It has lots of ups and downs and you run into a lot of challenges and having investors that are like cheerleaders that are supporting you no matter what, that even, even when things are like not up and to the right at all times are still <laughs> support, highly supportive and positive. It, it, that goes a long way. And I know that's rare because I know I'm friends with a lot of CEOs and they don't get always get that kind of support from their investors. Um, whereas we do. And the, the reason I can, I made sure that we did is because I did reference checks on our investors before, before selecting them with other CEOs. So even CEOs whose companies were crashing and burning would say things like Jeff Jordan is a prince among men. He was there for me like till, you know, till the very end, right? Or they would say, James Joaquin did X, Y, Z for me, even though like nothing was working, you know? So like, it's yeah. important that you do these reference checks, these backdoor reference checks on your investors before picking them, because like, you cannot get rid of them. They're with you for 10 years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's such a huge commitment. And, and to that point, I know you kind of give an example right there, but I mean, what were, so when you were doing these yourself, when you're doing reference checks on different investors and stuff, I mean, what are some of these questions you're asking just for other entrepreneurs out there who are going through this process? And like, what were some of the things you were curious about or were, were asking as you were going through this process of kind of referencing them? Yeah. So first, first and foremost, I did reference checks only with CEOs, right? Like yep. I don't like another investor is not going to be able to give like a valid reference check. So, so the CEOs that work directly with them, I'd ask, um, okay, what, what are the, what are the top three things they did for you? Mm. Like value add, right. Or, um, uh, when things were not going well, how did they react and what did they do for you when things were not going well? Uh, would you take money from this person again? You know, on N their NPS on a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to recommend? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is important. <laughs> it is. And, and, and a lot, you find out a lot this way too. And by the way, I mean, it's not like, you know, investors are doing reference checks on CEOs too. So it's just, you know, well, of course. I mean, they're yeah, they're tearing you apart as you're, <laughs> as you're going through this process. I mean, yeah. that's what they do all the time. But it is kind of interesting to see that like a number of entrepreneurs who doesn't doesn't seem like they do that enough. Right. Uh, no, I don't know. Like, why do you think you're? Why do you think you already knew to do that? Because like I said, I don't think all all the entrepreneurs are doing the same type of reference checks on their investors. Why do you think you have been able to, or even thought of it in the first place? You know, that's like a very interesting question. Um, and a lot of it has to do with past experience, right? So. When I was an employee at, at you know, software companies in the Bay Area, um, I observed, I, I, I've seen what happens when you don't have the right investors, right? When you have a board that is somewhat dysfunctional. And, and that is, it, it, the, the impact it had was so dramatic. Like, it didn't matter how amazing the team was and how much talent was at the organization. If the board is dysfunctional, if the, the if the if the leadership team isn't quite right, like it doesn't even matter. It will it will dramatically and negatively impact your go to market strategy. It'll impact your product roadmap. It'll like you just can't get that much done. Um, yeah. And and I just saw the huge impact and influence 
um, having the wrong investors has. <laughs> so therefore, it matters a lot that you get the right <laughs> investors. Uh, they can literally decimate a company. Yeah, I mean, again, going back to that point of just how long you're involved with them, the amount of work you need to do. I mean, like we say this whole marriage thing, it's like, yeah, you wouldn't just marry someone from from what the first day you you meet them necessarily. Like, there's so much that goes into that in terms of understanding the research you have to do to figure out who these people are as just people. Like, are they going to be good humans or not for you as you know them for the next 10 years or so? And right. so much that's involved in that. And and one of the things I'm really curious about with you is you mentioned the difficulties and people kind of understand the difficulties of of being a startup founder and you needing needing investors or someone to be your cheerleaders or just be there for you. But how... I mean, as as an entrepreneur, I mean, how are you taking care of your mental health, staying sharp, making sure like you're investing in yourself? Like, how are you doing that? Come on. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny. In, in Ben Horowitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, he says something like, you know, the number one job of a CEO is to manage their own psychology. And mm. like, I've just discovered in the last <laughs> few years, like, that's just so true. Um, there's a few things I do to, to, to do that. Um, first and foremost, I have a therapist and I think every, everyone, not just CEOs should just have therapists, like, an, yeah. you know, a professional psychotherapist, um, which that's been really helpful. Another is just having a support group. That's other founders, um, in these cities that I'm in, I'm in San Francisco, but you know, I know in LA, New York, wherever there is a group of founders and, um, and a community of founders. And it's just important that you have like four or five people that you can text anytime that you can get a zoom call at any time where, or you meet up with periodically because it helps you realize that you're not alone. Like the problems and it, it is a lonely journey and, and, and the problems and things that you're facing are not unique to you. Um, and it's just great to have that support group. Those are probably my biggest, two biggest, um, biggest tips. The third is just to just recognize that it is a skill set that you're growing, you know, like you're not supposed yeah. to, you don't necessarily need, you are not going to have all the answers from day one and um, you are going to evolve over time and you're going to get better over time. And just knowing that this is a, a journey of learning too and, and, and skill growth as well. Um, and just acknowledging that as well. Yeah. And I just want to go back to this point real quick because I, I think, like you said, I think everyone could be benefit from a therapist. Like, how did you decide to do that? And how did you go about choosing a therapist? Because it, it seemed overwhelming, I think. Yeah, I think, I don't know. I just like, I'm just generally <laughs> a somewhat neurotic, anxious person. <laughs> And, 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 you know, which served me well for many, many years because it just pushes you to just like, uh, you know, just keep, keep accomplishing. Right. But the downside of it is like when you, when you are the CEO of a company and you need to like, not just be, you know, the, the COO who's like getting in the nitty gritty details, you also have to inspire and communicate a vision and, you know, like the 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 anxiety and neuroses doesn't doesn't really help there right yeah Uh, and so that's kind of what triggered it like that's when I was like man I need to like be a different type of leader and 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 I I need to like approach problems and things in it in in new ways not just like oh shit like we just got to fix all this you know (laughs) so um that's what prompted me to, to to seek it and then uh I I I found out there just through referrals and recommendations from from friends and not necessarily founders like even even just, you know, other friends in tech um, and just other friends in your network. That's how I found it. Yeah. That just said someone good. Was there any, I don't know if it was the same, the same person the whole time. I'm just curious Yeah. that you have. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. Good to find, to find that. And one of the things that uh, I'm interested in as well, just looking at your history and everything, how do you think 
getting the MBA at Wharton, how has that kind of impacted your journey as a founder? Yeah, you know, it's it impacted it in many ways, and it's largely been positive. And I know that's going to be a controversial statement because MBAs always get knocked in Silicon Valley or in tech, right? Yeah. Um, it's like per- perceived as a negative thing to have. And I just really don't think it is. <laughs> like, I mean, there's been a few ways that has been hugely positive for me. Number one is, first and foremost, is that brand and that stamp, right? Yeah. That having that brand, um, and, you know, that's probably one of the many reasons that we, many of us go to these Ivy League schools or these top schools. Um, it's just, it just gives you instant credibility whether you deserve it or not, right? Um, True. For example, when you are fundraising and your first slide is like, you know, Rome's picture, Eman's picture, and the MIT logo is huge, and the Wharton logo is huge. Like, okay, like that's okay. You've established some level of credi- credibility in the first fifteen seconds. Yeah. You know, of course, after that, you got to deliver, right? But like, that helps. Um, the second, the second thing, in, the second area it helps with is just the network, right? Each time in every area of the business, um, the Wharton network has helped. Now, I, I mentioned earlier about doing that initial friends and family round, like three or four investors on my cap table are my Wharton classmates, right? Yeah. Um, uh, when it came to hiring, you know, if I need, you know, a, a leaders in different functions, uh, the Wharton network is one that I tap first, like it, it, particularly for referrals and recommendations um, because a lot of them are at this stage, you know, I'm, I'm in my um, mid thirties. A lot of them are like directors and VPs, like doing really well in a lot of different technology companies yeah. and a lot of healthcare companies too. Um, and then the third area is um, sales. So when it comes to, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that this is a sales like effort. Uh, on yes. Side. Very much so. <laughs> The, the Wharton alum are all over the place in the hospital industry. They're CEOs of hospitals. They're VPs at hospitals. They are private equity or investment professionals that work with hospitals. I mean, like the, the network helps. And did I get them the ROI on that two-year degree and $200,000 invested? Like, yeah, absolutely I did. Massively, actually. Yeah, I actually had the arguments. I don't know if it was on Twitter or LinkedIn or something about the MBA and the value for, for it. Because like you said, so many people do knock it uh, in the entrepreneurship world. Yeah. People, it's just kind of an easy thing to knock. I don't know why people decide to. But I, I think of it from the same way of like the network itself on its own, I think is already worth it. Just looking at for my business side of it, which is Go Grind and podcast guests and access to people and all those other things. That I'm like, whoa, this was all literally because of a school I went to. I mean, you know, it's it's kind of insane, but like it is so valuable for people. So uh, I do think people should, I'm not saying you need to go get an MBA if you want to be an entrepreneur, but it, it can be really helpful down the line. It can, uh, it can be really, really helpful. Um, yeah. One other area is actual like content that you learn, right? So for me, in my case, it was, um, you know, when I was fundraising and, you know, you have a, you have a financial model and, and and your finance and your balance sheet and your PL are like tied together and like you change something in one cell, it changes it in the other. And I, I thought this was like table stakes. Um, <laughs> it turns out that it's actually rare, like for for entrepreneurs and CEOs in tech to actually have a robust financial model. And I, I that that surprised me, right? And yeah, and really having the basic understanding of finance and accounting is pretty helpful when you're running a business. And and, uh, and yeah. understanding accounts receivable and accounts payable and cash flow, especially in the early stage before you, you know, before you can afford to like pay a control, you know, hire a controller. And honestly, just so you can have more strategic conversations with your head of finance, um, 
it, it, how you manage your cash and your resources and your financial resources matters a lot and can have a dramatic impact on your growth as well. And, and I, yeah. I wouldn't have that basic understanding without Wharton. I'm not saying that you need to go to an MBA to do that. You know, you can find out, you can, you can read books, you can read online, you know, you can teach yourself this stuff as well. But having a basic understanding of accounting and finance helps a lot too. Yeah. And to that point, it's like you said, I mean, that's just, it's one of like four things you just mentioned. I'm sure there's more if we really had to dig into every single way it's been helpful, you know, in terms of the, the total value you're getting back from the ROI you're getting back from this is it, tremendous. And I've always kind of viewed it the same way and have seen people in other classes and stuff do the same thing and be able to kind of leverage that for way more worth than the money invested, even though it is a shit ton of money invested uh, typically in an MBA, but it's still worth it. And and going back to the point of, you mentioned like Ben Horowitz's book, have there been any any other books that are impactful, personally, professional that you want to recommend or just uh, share with people? Uh, I always love reading and so I'm always curious what other people are, are checking out. Yeah, there's, there's quite a few actually. And it just depends on the topic, I guess. I mean, I, I thought that who, there's a book called Who, like W-H-O. Mm-hmm. Um, about, and that's a, probably the best book I've read about hiring. Um, another, this is not a book, but a blog, uh, a blog. I think Bill Gurley's above the crowd blog is extremely helpful. He has this one post about, um, it's called like the 10 X, how to join the 10 X revenue club or not, not all revenue is created equal, something like that. That's yeah. like extremely helpful because it, it almost like lays out like the, at the end of the day, you know, after 10 years and you're about to go public, what does your company need to look like? Describes mm. <laughs> like those goalposts and, and what's good, wh- you know, what's good and what's not. And, and, and kind of the, what are the different things you should consider? Um, and these are like foundational things that you can think about from the very beginning of, of your company. Um, what else? I think um, nfx.com has fantastic content and blogs on entrepreneurship, on marketplaces, on network effects. Um, I know I'm going to be sound a little biased here, but I think the Andreessen Horowitz blog and podcast has some really high quality content as well. Oh yeah. That's great. Um, um, yeah. I mean, so those are just, just to name a few. Yeah. And there are so many out there, especially now. I mean, so different from even like a, you know, like a decade ago or whatever. I mean, there's so many things out there, which you gotta be scrappy to find it, but that's what entrepreneurship is. I mean, you figure it out. One of the things I'm always curious about too is how do you recharge? How do you step away from work? Make sure you are your best self each day. Yeah. Um, good question. I think it's, it's really important. It goes back to the earlier question around like managing your own psychology, right? Like I, I, I do set up like boundaries, right? So for example, I will not work on Saturdays. Like I don't care what's happening. <laughs> I'm not going to yes. open my laptop on a Saturday. I'm not going to check email on a Saturday. Um, and just that mental break every week is, is pretty important um, just because the other days are just like such a grind, you know, <laughs> um, those are like, that's probably my number one tactic. And then, the, and then the number two is probably just like making sure you get, you know, your seven, eight hours of sleep um, every night. Uh, Cause you know, your, your, your cognitive function rapidly declines if you're getting less. Um, yeah. It's just, you got to stay sharp given how yeah. fast you're moving and all the decisions that you have to make. Yeah, on a day-to-day basis, there's so many things you're, you're dealing with as an entrepreneur. I mean, there's so many things thrown at you constantly. That's actually something I'm a big uh, journal. I like to journal a lot and I kind of just get thoughts down and get organized and get clear on my thinking. And one of the things with that I recently was just if there's ever a, a bad day or something happens, whatever, getting a good night's sleep and exercising, I mean, that just brings you back to normal <laughs> for me at least. Yeah. Like those two things have been 
immensely important. Like when I get like a really good night's sleep and have done some type of solid workout, maybe ran a few miles, whatever, uh, when those things are missing, you can tell you just, something feels off. Uh, and I noticed that in the last number of months and months and months. And that's something that to bring back as well of like, just whatever those things are for you, <laughs> remember to do those. The Saturday off is a great example of what you're doing, which is something to bring you back to, you know, relax and get away for a second of this all consuming thing that is a startup. Yeah, absolutely. And, and with you uh, in your journey so far, Amon, how has it been being, being a minority, being a, a woman as well? Like how has this affected your journey? How have you thought about it? I mean, has it been something you're like, uh, well, I just have to keep on trucking along or like, I'm just curious on how, what your thought process has been around that or how you've kind of approached it. Yeah. I mean, look, the, 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 statistics, the statistics and data in our industry are terrible, right? Whether it's entrepreneurship yeah. or tech, like take whatever slice you want. Right. <laughs> um, it's just like the, the statistics are just abysmal. Um, you know, like less than 1% of venture capital goes to black founders. I think it's 0.03% goes to black female founders. Yeah. So it's just like, clearly there's like um, structural bias that exists in this industry. Now, as is, it's fine to, it's, it's good to acknowledge that, but it's, if you're actually in the game, like you're in the arena, actually trying to make stuff happen, <laughs> um, you actually have to compartmentalize that um, and, and, and move on from it and not think about it at all. Uh, yeah. Because at the end of the day, like, hey, like when you're in a position where you're basically selling, right, like whether it's fundraising or c- convincing an employee to join your team or, or selling to a customer, um, you just got to be on your A game. Right. And you can't have any any stuff like that distract you. Um, and that's honestly been like the main way I've, I've had to deal with it. I, I know it sounds like silly to just be like, OK, we'll just suppress it, you know, but yeah, honestly, that's actually what you have to do. And, 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 and it's important to keep in mind that your counterparts, you know, like your white male colleagues, right. Um, and other CEOs, like they don't have that baggage in their, in their minds. Um, and, and that, that's an advantage. Yeah. And so you got to do whatever you can to not have that baggage impact you, especially when you're in a position, when you're trying to, trying to get stuff done or you're trying to make a sale or whatever it is. Yeah. And it goes back to something I've been told repeatedly from a number of different people, a number of different founders of like, ultimately to grow a startup and focus is something that's so important. And if you have distractions or other things that are in your mind, like you can't focus. And and if you can't focus, you can't make these good decisions. You can't do the things that your company needs to move forward. And so whatever you have to do to figure that out, to find a way to focus on the things that matter that actually move the needle, you have to do that. Otherwise there's so many distractions out there as well. Now, having said that, I think that, um, you know, minority or female founders, we do have like a, I mean, I, I do take it upon myself to try to make some kind of change industry-wide, yeah. right? So if there is a black or female founder that does get in touch or is referred to me for help, like I usually do help, right? Um, yeah. And I, like, e- e- even if it means I'm only helping like whatever, maybe 10 people a year, like I would hope that has some kind of impact. Um, I do put pressure on the venture capital firms that I work with and those that are scrambling to get into our company. Hey, like I ask those questions. So what are you doing about diversity? Right. Like, yeah. What are you doing to fix your process? Um, and, and it's just, you know, like I, I think, and then I do speak to the press about this topic. I'm open about it. Um, and I, and I hope more, more founders feel comfortable doing, doing those kinds of things too over time. 
Yeah, and I actually interviewed Stephanie Lampkin from Blendor, and she's you know getting diverse talent into into different companies through her platform. And it's one of those things where people make the excuse of a pipeline problem, but when you really look at it, there's a way there's ways around this this issue, and like that that's a perfect example with Blendor of of a company finding a way to bring in diverse talent to companies, and like more of that and spreading the word. And that's what you want to shout out right now because I think it's important for companies to understand there are options out there to make that happen. Yeah, um, but I love Stephanie Lampkin. And yeah. I, have you ever? Um, heard the concept of diversity debt no um, actually so this is a concept that's similar to technical debt so technical debt is when you build something really fast and like you, you do it in a really quick hacky way and as a result you know you pay for it later you've accumulated <laughs> debts right and then you yeah. go and fix you know fix that debt um the same thing happens with diversity in, on your team right so if you really rapidly quickly hire not considering diversity and you end up with a homogenous team um, you end up accumulating diversity debt. And so later down the line, when you want to hire that star, you know, black engineer or that Hispanic executive, um, they just simply won't join your team, right? Because yeah. the team all looks like one thing. And um, you basically have accumulated diversity debt. So that's why it's so important to um, tackle diversity and prioritize it from the very beginning, from early, early days. Absolutely. And, and Iman, where can people go to learn more about Incredible Health and connect with you if they want? Yeah. So um, the website's incrediblehealth.com. Um, and then for me specifically, um, you know, I'm on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, on, on Twitter. I'm on, at Iman Abuzaid. Um, the company is at Join Incredible. Um, I do have my DMs open. So if there's anyone out there that, you know, wants to connect or if you want any help or anything, feel free to DM me. Um, and yeah, that's, that's probably the easiest way, Twitter. Perfect. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. It's been great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. If you want to know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week I deliver right to you. Justgogrind.com newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.